We're at a time where I think this criticality of stepping in and owning that term for yourself or trying it on for size and going, I'm actually am a leader day in, day out, for better or for worse. And so why don't I take that title on, think about what that responsibility invites me to be, how that invites me to show up. Because in reality, what is leadership? It is people turning to us for advice and support and direction. You know, we do that for friends and family day in, day out, irrespective of whether we do it in an organisational context. It is about being for others, whether that is in a context, again, of our family, our community, our company, our street, whatever way you might want to define that, that idea that we are actively thinking about others and going about our business in a way that is for the benefit of others. That is active leadership. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I will live every day as if it were a microphone tucked under my tongue. It's great to get in the game, but don't get in the game until you understand the rules till you're an insider. Your life changes when you begin having a different conversation in your head. What we need to do in radically deep problems is propose radically visionary solutions. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Greetings, everyone. My name is Julie Masters, and you are listening to another episode of Inside Influence, in which I delve into the minds of some of the world's most fascinating influencers or experts in influence to get to the bottom of what it really takes to own your voice and then amplify it to drive an industry, a conversation, a movement, or a nation. So here's today's question. And I think it's a big one for many of us this year as we emerge from, you know, let's call it an intense time and into a new work and life landscape that's being basically written as we live it. So this is the question. How do you lead from the edge? Now, I love this question because it just it has so many layers to it. How do you lead from the edge of new terrain where the opportunities seem to be huge, but the how just feels messier and more complex than ever? How do you lead in a new world of work where the rules around how we work, where we work from, whether we work at all, have irreversibly changed? And the conversation that I'm hearing a lot behind closed doors at the moment, how do you lead from your own edge when your tank feels empty and there just seems to be no space available to exhale? Now, my guest today not only asks these questions out loud, she asks them of some of the most respected leaders on the planet. Holly Ransom is one of Australia's 100 most influential women, according to the Australian Financial Review. She has delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama, was Sir Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Future Game Changer to Watch, and was awarded the US Embassy's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence. She has interviewed the likes of Barack Obama, Malcolm Gladwell, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King, Condoleezza Rice, Nobel Prize winner Mohammed Yunus, and the world's first humanoid robot, Sophia. True fact. Holly fights complexity with curiosity and fear with fact. Her latest best-selling book, The Leading Edge, I cannot, I know I say this a lot, but I'm a book addict. This book is literally sat on my desk next to me as I record this. The Leading Edge helps people harness their own potential to lead by asking better questions, thinking beyond traditional answers and building collective momentum for change. It is, in short, a must for your bookshelf. I, I actually first came across Holly's work, kind of accidentally, a few years ago. 
And then I watched with growing awe and admiration from the sidelines as her career and her influence just exploded. And it was actually at some point last year, I was talking to a friend on the phone and she ended the conversation randomly with, have you ever met Holly Ransom? To which I genuinely replied, I haven't, but I can tell you that she will be the next Prime Minister of Australia. And after we both agreed on that prediction, she made the introduction and the rest, as they say, is history. In this long overdue podcast conversation, we dive into Holly's experience with the challenge of moving beyond the feeling of wanting to lead to the practical actions of leadership in motion including why most books on leadership still fail the implementation challenge. While we all need to learn how to stand where the lightning strikes, I love this one, basically looking for places outside of our everyday comfort in order to find clarity to our greatest challenges. How as leaders, it is our relationship to stress that is the problem, not stress itself. And that one really hit me. That stress itself is basically agnostic. The question being more whether the stress we're experiencing is healthy, made up of stretch and challenge, or toxic, made up of fear and powerlessness. The concept of managing energy and not time, and why this is the flip that every iconic leader, and let's face it, parent, has to learn how to make. And finally, the most challenging pieces of feedback we have both ever received as leaders, and what we decided to do about it. Now, I'll be honest, I started this conversation like the chronic over-preparer that I am with a full page of questions. And I reckon we got through three, maybe, maybe two and a half. You know, instead, it went where it usually goes, where Holly and I get together. And that is asking and exploring what it means to lead at a deeply personal level. What it takes to lead when the traditional uniform of leadership just doesn't seem to fit. It doesn't seem to fit who you are how you look, where you've come from, or what's expected of you in this day and age, and how to walk our talk when deep down we just feel like sitting this battle out. Or, and here's the big one, how to begin when you are inevitably not ready. Because let's face it, every single person and leader who's walked this road before you was never ready. Now, for those of you who are ready, who are ready to take their journey and influence to the next level, don't forget to hop onto my website or the show notes and download the latest version of my ebook, The Influencer Code. It covers the seven areas and the seven core questions that after 20 years of doing this, of working with influencers and leaders to raise their game, to raise the amount of impact that they're able to make, I have found to be the most useful. Just pop in your email address and it will bounce into your inbox in the tick of an eye. Is it a tick of an eye, I think? We'll go with it. On that note, sit back, drive safe, and please welcome onto the podcast the force of nature, the needed force of nature that is Holly Ransom. Welcome to the podcast, Holly Ransom. So good to have you. Thank here. you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You are, this is my first conversation, my first interview back since taking an eight week break. I'm so glad it's you. I feel like it's, I feel I'm like excited. it's a soft landing. Welcome back. No, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Um, I'm so, I, I want to talk to you about you. I want to talk to you about, you know, things I have observed 
that I have learned from you from an influence standpoint, and also obviously the book, hold on, the book. Hey, there the it book, is. The Leading Edge um, and some of the lessons that I've taken out of that. But before we begin, let's kick off with a question that I've been playing with probably for the past year. I may change it soon. But the question is, is there one idea that's having the most impact on your thinking right now? And the, the driver behind that question is that usually people who have amazing ideas, who are on the cutting edge of their field of expertise, they just have access two ideas or they notice ideas before the rest of us. So what what's the one idea that's having a huge impact on you or your thinking? I think the big idea that's having a, an impact on me and in part I think why it's having an impact on me is because I'm watching the way it's having an impact on my readers and audiences I'm talking to about it as well. And so it's increasing my intrigue about it as a, as a concept that can help more people um, get get momentum on things that matter for them uh, and can overcome whatever pre-existing barriers we might put around doing more of the things we know we need to be doing. And so it's this, it's the piece around how do we stop in a practical sense, perfect being the enemy of the good. And uh, one, the way this showed up uh, for me in the book, I, I wrote a chapter on this whole idea of managing energy instead of managing time. And one of the, and notionally, that's a confronting idea for a lot of people. That sounds very counterintuitive. It sounds very different. It's truly one of the most transformative things that I've done and shifted in my life. And it seems like that's resonating for you. Uh, it was a game ch- when I eventually got it. And I say eventually, when I eventually got it, it, it was a game changer. And, you know, I encourage people to explore that concept. And the, the, the book, The Power of Full Engagement, is a great place to go deep on that. But one of the things I found really encouraging, I think you hear that and you go, cool, great. And when you start thinking for people about an energy audit, you know, what are the things that energize you? What are the things that de-energize you? Most of that column, the anything you put in it, whether it's exercise, time with friends, meditation, this and that and the other, almost everyone when they talk about that list will say some version of, yeah, but I don't have the time. Or I just, I, I don't find I'm able to do enough of it. I don't find I can fit it in. You know, it's been a long time since I've done that, et cetera, et cetera. And so one of the interesting areas, I started looking at, well, how, how the performance scientists actually work with people to help them do more of this. And some of the research that's been coming out around micro breaks, micro habits, things like that. And in this context, we're talking about it in a uh, health sense. So in a physiological standpoint, you know, you might say, oh, I'd love to meditate, but I just can't find the 20 minutes. Oh, I'd really love to get to a yoga class, but I just haven't been able to find the hour. You know, my mornings are never free, whatever it might be. And they might be very true, but the, the thing that I've found really powerful is the researchers are saying, yeah, but it is as simple as three breaths taken over a 30-second period, and if we've got biomarkers on you, you will see positive physiological changes. Like, so it is as simple as getting up on the spot, and whether it's doing squats or star jumps or something like that for three minutes, you'll see positive biological changes. You'll change your brain chemistry. You'll start to get some of the benefit of movement. And so for me, that's interesting because it's taking the bar down so low that it's inexcusable any of us can't do it. And it's this powerful notion for me that I'm thinking around, where else does that apply? Because that's interesting and tangible and you can, we're seeing, you know, research teams are being able to track. There's benefit in doing that. So how do we inject more of that in? Part of what that's then got me thinking about is where else in our lives, habitually, new skills, all those sorts of things, does a similar model work? 
And how do we help people think about the way that they might break those things down and then build up in a meaningful way? Um, and how do we extrapolate out the proof? Because I think a lot of people are resistant to that idea going, yeah, sure. Like, come on. I know it's not as good. And yeah, sure, it's not going to the gym for 60 minutes. But guess what? If it's doing it three minutes a day, um, you're going to do it seven times this week as opposed to the one gym class you never went to waiting for that 60 minutes. And so it's better that you got 21 minutes than it is that you didn't get 60. So it, it's just an interesting concept that I'm enjoying sitting in and thinking about and this notion of what are my circuit breakers and how am I bringing them in? And then the application of this idea to other elements of what do we need more of? You know, how do we find that time to be on things and in things that if we left ourselves to our normal habits and routines, just do not get a look in by virtue of bandwidth and scope and focus and workload. That's, that's something I'm throwing around. I love that idea of, of a circuit breaker. Have you read, have you read James Clear's Atomic love Habits? Love Atomic Habits. Yeah. Yeah. Love that book. Um, and this idea of circuit breakers where, you know, there are the, there are the things that we say stop us, which is, you know, time and space and the bandwidth. And then I know for me at least, and then there's what actually stops you, which is often some kind of an identity, you know, am I the kind of person that does this? Is it part of who I am? Or am I kind of like trying it on for size and it feels a little bit uncomfortable? I think often there's there's this bit where if you can get over that, you know, this isn't who I am this until it, it is. I don't know if that makes sense. I was talking to somebody recently and he said, I am a, I'm a lifelong athlete. And I just thought, what a beautiful like way to end the phrase I am. I am a lifelong athlete. It's part of who I am. You know, I go, I cycle twice a week, you know, and I go for a walk. You know, he's not doing marathons. He's not doing Ironmans. It's just, I am a lifelong athlete. That's who I am as part of my identity. So that, that the process of becoming and the breaking it down, as you said, into small enough pieces so that you can start to wire yourself into the process of becoming until it's just, I am this person. This is part of what I do. This is part of my commitment and part of my flow. But that that identity piece, I don't know, I feel like that's often the, the, the time. I like the becoming story. piece in that too because I think what's interesting about that is it's sort of this idea of I either am or I'm not. And and that notion of actually and, and part of what stops us, I, I totally concur, is this idea of um, the the imperfect nature of not doing something to the degree that we believe well, good, perfect, excellent success looks like. And so we'd much rather stay out of the mess of anything that is less than than we would just step in and, and embrace that idea of becoming and be like, you know, that is where it begins, right? You can't get to become without doing the becoming. Uh, I, I like that that piece because I think that's, uh, you're right, that that's probably a barrier for a lot of people. It's like, well, when, I, when I've accomplished the marathon, I can call myself an athlete or something like that. Whereas actually... The idea is you can call yourself that athlete tomorrow, you know, and that to Clear's point, a lot of his work, that identity change is actually a really powerful catalyst for then the habit change following. I just, I mean, talking about t-shirt slogans, which we wear off air, you know, you can't, you can't become without doing the becoming is, is the next t-shirt slogan. And yes. I, I, yeah, we're going to find a way. I'm going to find a way. To Let's make, make that, that shirt. I like Now that. I want to talk, I want to talk about becoming and I want to talk about the becoming of a leader because you know that's your that's your field of expertise it is what you're it's what you're known for it is what you have this insatiable curiosity for in the time that I've known you and me following your career before before meeting you and 
I want to talk about leading from the edge because one of the core concepts I got out of the book was you don't have to be ready, which sounds simple, but has this kind of dovetail with a lot of the pushback that I get in my own work around raising your influence and raising your impact, which is, you know, I will show up when my confidence shows up, when my, you know, when somebody says that I'm ready, I will show up then as opposed to, you know, influence shows up when you show up, leadership shows up, opportunities to lead shows up when you, when you show up. Talk to me about that not being ready piece, because I think it's more prevalent than we give it credit for. I completely agree. And it's interesting that that was one of the things that really resonated uh, for you, because it was certainly one of the intentional reasons for writing the book was to disrupt the examples that we hold up of what it means to be a leader, what a leader looks like, what experience set, stage of life, etc. a leader comes from. In part because uh, when you do the lit review, as I went and did on that area of the library, it looks uh, pretty one-dimensional, whether that is that it's typically, you know, uh, white, cisgender, male leaders from the military, sporting or kind of industrial age, Silicon Valley type business. Uh, that or to your point a little bit around ready it's a lot of stories like looking back in the rear view mirror for people that have completed done a really great job kind of writing the memoirs and there's not too many of sort of things that are in the trenches and so it was actually really important to me that we featured a lot of people that are in the thick of their leadership journey at this moment in time or early in it we've got people going right the way through from their 20s through to 88 in the book so it's a real spectrum of kind of stages of leadership Um, And I think it's an an interesting one because you're right, I hear this all the time. I hear, oh, when I get the promotion, when I'm in the corner office, when I've got X number of people that I'm in charge of or something like that. And I just remember it was an observation that struck me, you know, early in my career and early, I guess, in a time where I was curious about this topic, where I was sitting at the feet of a lot of leaders, looking at different organisational models was there's no magic point where someone comes and dangles the leadership keys and goes, here you go, take it for a spin. You know what I mean? Like that's not no, a moment and, that and, happens. And I think, you know, that's worth highlighting because as trite as it sounds, you know, this vision, this vision that we have that there will be a moment when the clouds will part, you know, the, the sunbeam will hit us on the head and angels will start singing and someone will go, it's you, it is you. You know, that it just doesn't exist. And part of it is very true for our moment in time, right? So we are speaking at a time where the industrial model of organisation is like on the whole, uh, no longer the dominant model in the landscape. And as a consequence, the industrial model of leadership, the model of leadership that has supported the industrial model of organisation. So we're talking lots of layers of hierarchy, centralised decision-making, typically command and control style and approach. That doesn't work in a modern context. Like you think about our reality now, and I'm, I'm talking about this with leaders week in, week out at the moment, We've got a talent-led market, like unemployment is at record low levels. So you've got a very um, loose relationship with your people. They can they can choose to go anywhere else tomorrow if they want to. Their skills are really transferable. So the ease uh, that with which they can move from place to place is real, as opposed to back in uh, a generation ago, maybe two, when you studied a degree that took you into maybe not even just an industry, a company where you spent the entirety of your career. So there's this really, you know, we're in a much more decentralised model. No one's got the monopoly on great ideas. In fact, increasingly we're seeing coming out of some of the best business schools in the world, this whole philosophy around um, distance from the field. 
and that we're actually seeing unbelievable breakthrough in uh, solutions to protracted problems coming from people who actually are about as far removed from the field as you can get. They're not the PhDs. They're not the 30 years in industry. They're actually the people that are coming it with fresh eyes and going, hey, have we thought about that before? Why don't we try this? So we're at a time where I think this criticality of stepping in and owning that term for yourself or trying it on for size and going, I actually am a leader day in, day out, for better or for worse. And so why don't I take that title on, think about what that responsibility invites me to be, how that invites me to use your language to show up. Um, because in reality, what is what is leadership? It is, you know, it is people turning to us for advice and support and direction. You know, we do that for friends and family day in, day out, irrespective of whether we do it in an organisational context. It is about being for others, whether that is in a context, again, of our family, our community, our company, our street, whatever way you might want to define that, you know, that, that idea that we are actively thinking about others and going about our business in a way that is for the benefit of others. That is, that is active leadership. Um, and so when we, when we change the way that we think about the definition and we actually challenge that notion that it looks like something that harks back to two centuries ago, or sorry, to two generations ago, um, I think it, it, it gives permission for a lot more people to try it on. And the thing I think I say about ready all the time is for me, ready is a mirage. And so we've got to be really alive to mirages because they're very alluring. They look like they're just that little bit further away. Like maybe I'm two years off that in my career. I'm one promotion off. I'm, just you, know, I'm the fine. you know what I mean? Like it's close enough that we kind of go, oh yeah, not yet. No, wait till the ducks line up. And the reality is, you know, that ready never arrives. Like that mirage just keeps being that little bit further away. So I'm a big believer in the notion of, Start before you're ready, uh, as counterintuitive as that sounds, and that notion that absolutely everyone is um, is leading uh, in this moment in time. It's just a question of whether they've got, uh, I guess, the the willingness to acknowledge that about themselves and to take the ownership and responsibility on, uh, and the opportunity for that matter, of what comes with associating yourself in that way. Getting to your point earlier about identity, that is a big identity for a lot of people to try on for size. It is, it is. And I love the definition that you used. I don't know if it's not the core definition that you used in the book, but it's just one of the definitions. You said leadership is about better scaling the impact that we're able to have. And I loved that because that's that's not, you know, the typical de definition of leadership, which is, you know, get everybody on the bus, you know, hustle, my way, highway, you know, convince, persuade. It's not that. It's that you are capable of having an impact and the fastest, most effective way for you to have the impact that you're capable of having is to have people around you that can help you leverage you and propel you towards that impact. And you can only do that through honing your ability to lead, whether you are a parent, whether you're in a community, whether you're in a business, whether you're a CEO, whether you're, you know, billion dollar tech startup founder, you know, it doesn't matter. You have an impact that you're trying to make and the best way for you to get there is through leadership. And I love what you said before about there being this traditional look of leadership. I remember when I first started out as a leader and, and I read this in your book as well, that you had a similar experience. I can remember looking at all the leadership books and thinking none of this looks like, not only does none of this look like me, but I don't resonate with any of this. It was very strategy driven. It was very linear. It was very push focused. And I was like, where's, where's anyone just talking about, you know, how you prepare yourself to walk into a room where everybody's twice your age, you know, what, 
what it takes to adjust your mindset to be able to hold your own regardless of resistance, regardless of pushback and still be open enough and curious enough to allow ideas in. But those are conversations that just weren't, weren't being had. How did you, when you first started out in a leadership role, how, what gaps did you find and how did you go about trying to bridge them for yourself? Oh, so many. I mean, here, here to what you said there. I mean, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, I, I remember and I recall it, I think, in the book, one of the the first things I did when I started being in business, you know, it was uh, was I decided well, I better better learn something about business. It was not a world I'd, I'd played into, you know, up to that point. I'd worked since I was thirteen years old, but in terms of actually this notion that oh, I'm I'm involved and I'm a I'm a leader and I'm I'm working for a company and things like that wasn't till I was probably first second year uni. I'd, I'd um, studied law and so I'd gone into the legal side of things originally and it wasn't till about year two I went actually I think the business side of things is much more my 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 game um, let's try it out and I went to this business event because I figured okay well sign start reading every business book I can find in the library one because maybe I can learn viral osmosis some of the things I'm meant to understand and know what know how to do what do I do go to the library yeah. excellent go to the library start I mean there. all of us have that available to us it's yep. a great place to start I'm, I'm not being critical I'm an enormous consumer of um of, of books and I think it's just such an incredibly accessible way you know for, for many of us uh to be able to learn um but I also thought I better get involved in a network, you know, meet people where I can have the opportunity to uh, connect and, and learn that way, and particularly being a kinesthetic learner. So someone who learns through doing, I learn a lot through kind of processing out loud and testing my thinking with people. And I remember vividly going to this event as a 19-year-old, probably in a completely, like, terrible version of a corporate outfit, like a suit that was too big and looked dorky and geeky and whatever, but I went to this event and I, I can still recall being completely looked up and down and sort of spat out. Nobody, two people talked to me that entire event. Like I am not a wallflower. I'm not hard to talk to. About 250 people at this event and only two of them had a chat to me the entire time. And it was just this sense of, you know, oh, you're not, you're not someone I'm going to make a deal with today. You're not a, a network connection that's valuable to me at this moment in time. So you kind of felt like you were part of the wallpaper, to be honest. They looked almost through you or, or around you. Um, so I think, you know, that was an interesting interaction to begin with. Uh, one of the things that Richard Branson is big on, and, and certainly he's reinforced to me over the journey, he's got a great principle when he hires that whatever the role might be, you know, he'll, he'll have his interview candidates, they'll come in, they'll charm him to whatever degree they can and, and all of that. And then they'll all leave and he'll go down to his receptionist and say, tell me who of those uh, that I've just spoken to, you know, the five or six of them have come through today. Who asked you your name? Who asked you how your day was going? Who was polite to deal with and seemed like a, you know, and basically that would be even if the front-running candidate was a person that had not been kind to his receptionist, he would not hire them. Um, and the most important thing for him was how uh, they treated people when they didn't think they were on. And so I think, you know, there's there's all many ways, speaking about what you were saying earlier in terms of, you know, being in rooms where you're the odd one out. I think what a lot of what you learn from that being your initiation by fire is you learn a lot about how you want to treat people, uh, in part because of how you get treated because in so many ways you are the odd one out, the one that doesn't fit the mould, and you get a, really used to what it's like to be sometimes ignored and excluded, sometimes just not given the 
the time of day, you know, it can, it can be on a spectrum, right? But I think that was probably one of the biggest things that I went out looking for role models in, who were leaders that are great at how they build culture, that look after their people well, that are leaders that create other leaders, um, that are leaders that operate in a sustainable way where you don't turn around after they leave an organisation and look at the collateral damage that has ripped its way through. And in many ways, I think that fascination probably came from um, some of those early experiences of going, wow, there's a lot of people that are in business, which in theory is all about customers and or clients and uh, your team and, you know, all these people dynamics, all these relationships, all these trusts. And yet I'm having this experience where, you know, my interactions with them for a relationship standpoint couldn't leave more to be desired. How does this, this feels really incongruent. And I think that's where a lot of my early curiosity around leadership, team dynamics and culture probably started. I think also you, you learn to be, I want to say sharper, and I don't know if sharp is the right word, but you learn to be sharper. You learn to make words count. I did anyway. You, you learn to make what you're about to say count because, you know, you've got a limited amount of time where you've got anybody's attention or anybody's bandwidth or until you get in some cases interrupted. Um, so you learn to say, and I think you learn, you learn to listen and to, to hold space because, you know, that was one of the greatest things when I first started out in leadership, you, when I wasn't talking, I would just watch, I would just watch everybody in the room and listen intently and then wait for wait for a time when it was where my words would make the largest impact as opposed to trying to, you know, out shout or out interrupt or, you know, out doof as another word, everybody in the room. Um, and that, that definitely marked a pivot point because I certainly tried all of those strategies mm. first. Oh, and you do. Yeah. Absolutely. Great. You try them I mean... and they just feel awful. Like it's just, I remember coming out of rooms where people be like, that was a great conversation. I think, Oh my God, that was just exhausting. That was exhausting to me. Um, so you try different things until you realize, okay, I don't, I don't want to do it that way. That doesn't fit for me. I'm going to have to find and look for different ways to do it. And you find the right people to help guide that, right? Too, you know, you find people that can be mentors and reference points that both you admire the approach and nature of how they do it, but also. They're people that can speak in and give you that feedback in a way that comes from a genuine place of wanting to see you grow and develop and be the best version of you. Uh, and I think that is, you know, I'm recalling a moment in particular, Lane Beachley, one of my beloved mentors and friends, I remember vividly, and I can't remember how old I was, but I was probably oh, 22 or 23 maybe, and I was on, uh, Lane uh, invited me to be uh, a board director on her foundations board with the fabulous work that she was doing with the Aim for the Stars Foundation, providing scholarships to women and girls right across Australia. And I remember her pulling me aside after a board meeting, and it's a great example of sort of carrying forward this way of thinking you have to show up to get cut through and to, um, to be able to exist in those spaces that are not built or designed for you and don't really seem all that welcome to you. And she said to me, I just remember she put her hand on my shoulder and said, you, you don't need to push anymore. And it was like this reflection on, you know, obviously the way that I had been coming across in that meeting was sort of over-asserting myself because in part, to your point around having to be loud and having to do this and that and the other, you know, for a long time, I think that that was 
again, maybe a strategy that served me to a point, but certainly I think what I took in that moment is that's that's not a strategy that you need or that's not a strategy that's serving you anymore. And it was a great playback from someone that I really trusted the the values, the views, uh, the perspective of that allowed me to go, oh, wow, okay, interesting. Didn't even realise to some degree that was what I was doing. I get to make a different choice now. You've invited me and given me permission to do that. And so I think things like that are really helpful for those recalibrations because um, you are making the best goal that you can, but there's a lot of, well, I don't know how you feel, Jules, but like they, for me, they, a lot of times there wasn't a reference point. And so you don't necessarily have that loop where you're knowing whether it's working or not. And, and so where you can get data like that and where you can have supportive friends and allies, it makes a big difference. And there was very little reference point. Very, I mean, you only really knew when it didn't work, when what you were doing wasn't working, when it didn't work and, you know, something fell apart, either a deal or a relationship or whatever it is you were trying to, whatever impact it is you were trying to make. Um, how did you, I'm just curious, how did you internalize that? You know, you get feedback like that, which is just beautiful of Lane to give you. Um, and you, you can feel so much in just those words. Like, you know, you don't, you don't have to exhaust yourself. You are enough in that moment. Your words are good enough, powerful enough. Your ideas are strong enough. You know, there's so much in that. How did you, how did you internalize it and what did you do differently? Yeah, it's a great question because um, Lane has been an unbelievable truth teller in my life. And one of the things I love about our relationship, and I think she'd be happy me saying, I think it goes in both directions, is we've got this unbelievable ability to speak honestly from uh, nothing but a place of love for one another and a desire to see one another happy, thriving, or in, in whatever way we've defined that for ourselves at a given moment in our lives. And so it is not the only challenging bit of feedback over the journey I've had from her. She calls me on my shit all the time and I love her for it. Um, and But the reason I, I'm, I'm thinking about it is because I remember maybe two years earlier I had gotten a similar-ish piece of feedback uh, from a very different person in my life someone who at that point I think would have held themselves out as one of my mentors and to be honest uh, I probably would have associated them with that title as well they're actually someone I write about in the book in terms of um, really doing wrong by me in in terms of uh, saying one thing to my face then me overhearing in in the bathrooms of the the conference we were at a very different story of what she thought of me and and so I, I think there was a big learning journey for me by getting burnt a couple of times over in my early 20s around who are the people that you let speak in uh, and who are the people that you take the feedback from. And when and I think those people also have a certain way that they do it. So the equivalent feedback maybe two years prior had been when we're at a conference, I'm quite loud and extroverted. I'd come up to someone quite enthusiastically. I was excited to meet them. Um, and the way this person had sort of pulled them, pulled me aside was sort of to have a go at me around, you know, that was a bit too much. You're a bit too much. Um, and it was quite a, it had a bit of a bite to so, it. I'm always so, like my whole body reacts when I hear the word too, something yeah. about the word too, too much, too little, too quiet, too loud. Yeah. And what was disappointing for me about this individual was there someone that held themselves out as a great champion of women and probably three or four times in quick succession, um, I was really held out to dry by them or really hurt by the way that they 
sort of conducted themselves. And the reason I, I say that as part of my answer, one of the reasons I think that comment landed for me in such a helpful way with Lane is because of the trust that I had in the relationship and the place it was coming from. And I think having those people and, and even, you know, we were in a conversation on an unrelated note last week about how we can be more of that for each other moving forward, Jules, which I'm really excited about. Having those people I think is crucial because we all need feedback, but feedback is one of, you know, when we look at, and we, we poll this all the time with leaders, it is one of the things that makes us most uncomfortable because feedback in our heads has come to be associated with I'm not enough. People are going to point out, you know, my my deficits, my lack, my this, my that, the other, because that's our experience of being chucked on a bell curve in an organisation or that once a year performance review or whatever it is, our connotation of that word. It's a bit like how when you do something and you get 100 nice comments and one person said one negative thing. You know, even if on the whole our experience with feedback has been positive, we anchor immediately to that time where it completely destabilised us. And so I think there's something so important about the trust in the relationship because that gives licence to speak in and it means that there's a thoughtfulness to the way that that speaking in is provided. You know, when I think about the contrast between, you know, what was said two years earlier and then the way Lane delivered kind of the similar message, um, the way I felt supported and cared for, the way I saw it as like permission granting versus critical uh, chalk and cheese and so it did it changed the way I showed up it invited me to start exploring and experimenting at future meetings um okay maybe I'll offer my point differently today maybe I show up in a way that um you know I uh, I ask more questions this time around or I speak last or first or whatever it might have been that that might have been the way that I thought about bringing that to life but it was an invitation to try as opposed to an admonishment for being and I think that for me was the big difference in how I received those two and why one of them was transformative and the other in in some ways was net negative, I think, for how it made me feel and the actual questioning it made me then embark on of, oh, am I? And, oh, what does that mean? And should I be smaller? And, and that whole Pandora's box that that kind of opens up, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And also, again, you know, looking at the power of language, you know, you you are too much. It's a... It's a definition of who you are. It's an interpretation of who you are mm. as opposed to, you know, you, have you thought about trying this on? You know, have you, have you thought about this lens? Have you thought about, have you thought about bringing this part of your personality out to play a little bit mm. and just seeing what that does? You know, there's an incredible listening part of your personality, a part of your personality that holds space, a part of your personality that is incredibly curious. Have you thought about bringing that out to play more? because that's a hugely powerful part of who you are. You know, there's, there's the, the attack or feedback on a, def, a very rigid definition of who mm. you are versus what you're playing with right now. Totally. And, and to your point, you know, it's because, it, it, you know, it's very valid. Like I remember learning as a 19-year-old that introverts existed and it blew my mind. Like I, I'm aware <laughs> of how... Like horrible, I must, oh, genuinely, we did Myers-Briggs and they made us to test the letters afterwards between E and I, sit in a room for like five minutes in silence. And so they get to the end of it and they ask like, how was that for everyone? And I'm, I'm like rocking in my chair going, that was some form of child abuse. Why did we have to do that? And then there's all these people that put their hand up and go, that was fantastic and allowed me to think about X, Y, Z. So it was, you know, I can only imagine how accurate that was. But I also think to your point around language, 
like for example, nothing was more transformative for me than reading Susan Cain's book Quiet a couple of years later and being invited to understand. And I went, oh wow. And it's transformed the way that I think intentionally about anything from the way I deliver and design learning and programs through to the space that I make for friends and the way that I ask questions and the cadence of our conversations. Um, you know, I'm, I'm engaged to an introvert. Like it's, it, you know, it's been a, a whole journey. But I also just think how different it would have been to your point around offering permission, even if there'd been a suggestion of a, of a resource without the, uh, you have to go listen to this or geez, you could do with some of this. This notion of, hey, I know you're really curious about the way people interact. You should check out this really interesting thought leader in this space. It would have it totally changed the framing and my openness to self-reflection in a way that would have been much more powerful for me earlier in my journey. And I think that that distinction there between an invitation versus a, I'll say criticism for one, like to, to focus on the invitation, what are you inviting somebody into? You know, if we assume that all things are possible and they want to show up as their best selves and they want to connect with the people that they're to connect with, they want to have the impact that they want to have, what can you invite them to? Is it a resource? Is it to play with a different side of themselves that you know that they that they have in spades? Like what's what's the invitation as opposed to What the, do you think's the best invitation you've been offered? Oh gosh. What's the best invitation I've been offered? From a development growth standpoint. Uh, from a growth standpoint, mm. I'll give it to you. There was, you know, Colin James. <laughs> yeah, like Colin James. So Colin James is a legend in total the, legend. Yeah, in the speaking world, he is like who the the best of the best go and go and train with. And I was having I was having coffee with him. He's also an incredibly deep thinker. And I just mm. love his company. And we were we had coffee together. And we were, we were just chatting. I can't remember what we were chatting about. And he, I remember, I asked him for some feedback because I had just facilitated a team. It's a team of speakers, you know, it's a bit like herding cats at times with that kind of a room. (laughs) And I had just facilitated this room and I said to him, can I, do you have any feedback for me? I would love it if you do. And he said, you, you need to let go of your little girl. You need to let go of your little girl and you need to embrace the, the powerful woman that you have the capacity of being. But at the moment, you know, your little girl, she shows up a little too often in the moments where you hope you're being liked or in the moments where you hope it's going well or in the moments where you just, you know, you just let behaviour slide when you shouldn't. How was that to receive? Oh, so uncomfortable. So Mm. uncomfortable because I was trying to run this big organisation and lead people, you know, twice, three times my age. And it was was incredibly uncomfortable, but I, I never forgot it because he was mm-hmm. right. He was right, and it was an invitation. It was an invitation to me to drop a side of myself that had been a crutch for me through the years, um, and step into what was possible and where I was now, and what was required of me now, and the most powerful way of showing up as myself now. And can I ask what what did you do to drop that crutch? Because I think that's an evolution that many people listening can probably relate to, whether it's a little girl, whether it's a version of ourselves that we're anchored to, that was something we were at 2018, you know, whatever it might be, at a, in a different chapter of our lives. Um, 
that idea of freeing ourselves of the shackles of that? Did you do anything practically that worked for you in helping? Because you've done it, absolutely. I mean, you're one of the most powerful people. I love the way that you hold space and the energy that you give off in doing it. Um, what's helped you get there? I think um, two things. One is I learned a lot from Alan Parker, another legend, and, and he talks about first position, second position, and third position in NLP. First position being when you're just completely in your own mind. You're listening to your own narrative. You're listening you know, to the voice in your head in exclusion of all other things. Do they like me? Is this working? Am I going to fall flat on my ass? Does anybody realize that I don't know what I'm doing, that I've never done this before? Da, 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 da. Um, second position is when you're paying very close attention to what other people are thinking. So first is what you're thinking. Second is what other people are thinking. So that's when, and you know, we've all been there, when you're giving a presentation or when you're talking and there's somebody, or, you know, who just doesn't look quite present, who doesn't look like they're paying attention or on their phone. Or the worst one I ever had was in another country giving a keynote in front of, you know, hundreds of people and mm. someone was asleep in the front row, literally no, just put their head the down row. on their arms oh. and fell asleep in the front row. That's hard. And I That's think, I, I don't know, I don't think they actually worked for the company. I think they were someone's partner who'd come to the conference, but either way, so distracting. <laughs> So distracting. So distracting. And so the, the difficulty with second position is because you're constantly wondering what other people are thinking. You're constantly staring at other people trying to figure out what does that facial expression say? What does that mean? What does... And third position is the shift that I had to learn to take. And third position is when you helicopter up and you hold an intent and a vision for the room or the, for the collective of people that you are there and you are responsible for because part of being a leader is that you are responsible for the people within the space that you hold. And so you lift up. And so if the behavior of one person doesn't work for the collective, then that's easy because you're up here. You're not getting caught up in what everybody thinks of everybody else and what they think of you and what you think. Like, so to get lift up out of that was probably a big shift and it took, it took practice. Um, and it takes catching yourself. It does. It takes catching yourself over and over and over again. It takes walking out of rooms and going, well, that just was a train wreck. <laughs> like, <laughs> did not nail it in that particular moment. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and it takes that. And then it takes showing up over and over again until you start to feel this gravity. And I'll own it. You know, you start to feel this gravity collect around you that you can tap into where you know now i can i can ease into the gravity now i know what it feels like enough to recognize how it sits and feels in my body enough to be able to find it and go there relatively easily but at first it's like trying on this thing that just feels incredibly uncomfortable and doesn't quite fit and so time um a mentor so short answer time a mentor and a and commitment I love the commitment piece as well because I think it reminds me of when I tried to get into cardio um, uh, with regards to like running uh, when I was getting into triathlon and it's there's this funny thing and anyone who's ever done any kind of running for a consistent period can probably resonate where for a while it just sucks and you have to keep telling yourself, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I know this doesn't feel great, but just keep at it. And then there's this magical moment. And I, I'm sure there's more science to this. They might even be able to define its X number of reps where this happens, where it starts to feel good. 
And all of a sudden it flips and you start to crave the endorphins and you miss the days that you you don't have it and things like that. But that piece, you've got to get yourself over the hill. Uh, and that commitment for that discomfort of trying that on and reckoning and wrestling with yourself in the mess of what that bit feels like, um, that I think that commitment piece can't be overstated because the idea that you're flicking a switch tomorrow and it's going to be different, you're kidding. This is not one thing where you get up tomorrow and read a new affirmation and it changes, right? And I think you know a key part of that is when you stop believing the voice in your own head. Yeah. You know, anything uncomfortable, and I know you talk about this in the book, you have this beautiful phrase, let me find it, standing where the lightning strikes. Mm. Um, this commitment to being uncomfortable as a way of got transcending to the next level within yourself, connecting into the why you do what you do, the thing that holds you even when it hurts, holds mm. you in place. Um, I did a, a long bike ride through Thailand for charity and I had, honestly, I trained for it. Not at all. And if anyone has ever sat, you know, on, in, in a, a bike saddle for that long, <laughs> or yeah, for that long in the blistering <laughs> heat, having trained for it, not at all. We were doing like a hundred, hundred plus kilometers a day and the heat was incredible. And I remember going up these massive hills and the first few days were torture because this voice would go up in my head and it'd be like, I can't do this. I can't do it. I cannot get to stop this. I'm going to, I literally, I have nothing left in the tank. Nothing. There is no more left in my legs. And then you just keep cycling and you'd get to the top of the hill and then come day three or four and then five. I just stopped listening to the voice inside my head. I just stopped buying into it. And I think that that's a big part of it as well you know, just learning to separate yourself out from the voice inside your head that says you're not. And ready. also challenging. I resonate with that a little bit from what triathlon taught me. You know, when I signed up to do an Ironman during my year of fear, it was, uh, I couldn't have run 10 K let alone done the rest of it. And, and so it was so far beyond my realm of possibility. And that voice was loud. Like it was, you are kidding. There is no way. Um, and one of the things that my coach taught me, you know, she would talk a lot about if you start with the finish line in mind, you won't finish. It needs to be about the next step or the two kilometer mark or whatever increment you're breaking any component down into your field of view. Like there's a great quote. Uh, and of all the places, I swear this is vividly stuck in my head from the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants books from when I was a teenager of all places. My, that is a little while since I've heard that. That title. is a weird reference. I know. I, I'm going to mis misquote the eloquence of it, but um you may only be able to see as far as the headlights, but you can make the whole journey that way. And I think that is what I come back to a lot of the time in terms of if your expectation is too great on yourself, it's really easy the moment it doesn't land, you know, whether that's meditating once and thinking that you couldn't clear your mind and therefore that's got no value in it, or whether it's thinking I can wake up tomorrow and I can show up with a different energy, you know, in a different way. It's like the, the kind of, uh, progress markers need to be more realistic and more closer in than that. And if you can do that for yourself, it, it we, that piece around progress and the importance of feeling like we're progressing in order to encourage us to keep at it cannot be overstated. Like the motivational literature that sits behind that is enormous. And so with anything that you're working at, I think that idea of how do you, how do you pull it down into those smaller stages so that you're being more reasonable to yourself and practicing a little bit more self-love, self-care in the way that you're going about that shift and, and transformation. I think, I think what you said there is really, really important. 
you mentioned there and you mentioned it so quickly that those who were listening even intently probably missed it um you miss you mentioned the year of fear <laughs> yeah talk to because and the reason the relevance with which i bring this up is that i feel like most people have gone through in some ways shape or form a year two years of fear mm. um and i'd love to talk to you about what that was for you what it looked like and your learnings coming out the other end mm. i totally agree a lot of people i think have been living in with a lot of fear um probably well, I think we can probably broadly acknowledge we've proven to ourselves we're a lot more resilient than we might have anticipated going into the, the pandemic and everything that's come subsequently. Probably the one distinction I'd make with the year of fear that we did is this year of fear started with this notion of, you know, what are my life goals? What are my, you know, therefore my career, personal, whatever goals? And what's stopping me? Like, so we've all got comfort zone we're all very familiar with that idea you know our technical skills our areas of expertise the things we studied um, the things we've been doing for 10 years whatever that might look like they'll be different for everyone but we've all got that bit that's easy it's safe it's stable we could do it with our eyes closed sweet now that's great that's everything that got us to where we are today but if we're talking about this notion of tomorrow being better than where we are right now there's a reality and Einstein said it best when he said the definition of insanity is thinking that you can keep doing that same stuff and it's going to get you a fundamentally different result. And so what we did for this year, I read this quote, and I feel like all of us has this one friend that's crazy enough to, to say yes when we ask them these things. I read this quote that said, is the things that we're afraid of that we most need to do. And sometimes I feel like your gut just has a reaction to things that is indicative that you need to sit with it. And then my gut jarred at that. It was like, ooh, I am made uncomfortable. There is something I don't like about that. What am I going to do with that? And so naturally I called my best friend and said, I want to guinea pig it. Uh, how about for 365 days we do this? And fortunately my best friend Charlie is as loony as I am and he said, great, let's do it. Um, and so we embarked on this year of fear. And if I think about the way we conceptualise it at the start of the year, visually I often use this image when I'm sharing this story with audiences of me jumping off the side of a boat in Antarctica in January of that year and doing the polar plunge. And mentally that's what I thought the year would look like in the sense of like hurtling outside of my comfort zone. What was really interesting is that is the absolute opposite of what the year looked like. And when I look at what that year was full of, um, it, it, it was an interesting reflection we had when about three months in we started talking to people about what we're doing. It took three months to do it. We were bloody... Uh, scared, you know, which is ironic, but we thought, oh my God, people are going to think we've got screws loose or worse, they're going to ask us about the sort of things we're doing that we're afraid of. And that felt very vulnerable. But when we started telling people, they all had the same question, which was, how do you have enough stuff you're afraid of? We're going, are you kidding? We've got this never ending list over here. What are you talking about? And what was interesting is their preconception matched our preconception in some ways, because when you use the word fear, people think about sharks, snakes, spiders, jumping out the side of a plane, which, don't get me wrong, legitimate fears, unlikely to be the fears that are getting between you and your promotion. Like if they are, I really want to know what you do. So <laughs> there's, there's sort of a, a reality of like we've desensitized to the way fear shows up every day. And so we actually need to resensitize and take the judgment off it because Hollywood's almost taken fear and run away with it. And what's happened is, A, we're not conscious to a lot of our blocks, which is a problem in itself. 
or we judge them. Like we noticed for two weeks, we had an app where we had to post every day to complete the challenge. And for two weeks, we would write things like, I know this sounds stupid, but, or this might be crazy, or this is silly, but, and there would always be this, this precursor to us saying what we'd done on a given day that was sort of uh, trying to make up for the fact it felt really embarrassing or really uneventful or something like that, as real as it might have been that it was a genuine fear for us. So that was a big lesson in and of itself that we need to resensitize to that. Because when I look at the year, it wasn't about hurtling outside of my comfort zone and all that sort of stuff. It was about being vulnerable and completely resetting my relationship with that word and what it meant to show up in that way with people that I love and care about. It was about learning to say no. Uh, and that was a big word for me to get my head around at that moment. I decided to start my own business that year which in and of itself wasn't the fear. It was actually that I was really used to and good at what I'd been doing prior to that point. And now there was so much new and I had to be a beginner again. And so I had to say, I don't know a lot. And I had to go ask for help a lot. And that felt scary. And that felt vulnerable. Um, you know, it was a lot of those sorts of things. And so for me, it was, and I often say this to people, I think getting comfortable being uncomfortable is the single most important habit uh, muscle we can be building as leaders at this moment in time. And so doing that self-reflection on what's in my comfort zone, aren't I grateful that this is in my wheelhouse? You know, great to remind ourselves of what we can be confident in and what we can be mindful of talking up about ourselves to. But what's in my courage zone? And which of those things do I believe if I could bring into my wheelhouse? Because this is the powerful part when you do the thing you're afraid of and the apocalypse doesn't happen. Uh, little by little, very encouraging the first time, I should add, um, the, it actually comes into your comfort zone. And so things that you're afraid of six months ago, six weeks ago, you know, there's, there's varying levels for all of this. Um, all of a sudden it's part of your wheelhouse. And so your capacity expands and the circumstances in which you feel comfortable and competent and capable and confident expand. And that is unbelievably powerful. So for me, it's even less about what you nominate from a which of these things you circle. It's more about the discipline of continually coming back to that. Not necessarily every day, don't get me wrong, but this idea that you might do this once a week or once a month, you know, you'd be really disciplined about the idea of this is the thing I know I feel uncomfortable about. What's the way I'm going to take a baby step towards having a go at that? Um, and I do say that to people, you know, we need to be kind with ourselves when we step outside our comfort zone. The right way to do this, let's take, for example, what you and I do for a living, public speaking, very big fear for a lot of people. Also the type of fear that can be getting in the way of your next step for success. A lot of people have to be talking in front of teams of staff, et cetera, in order to be able to be you know, up for that next promotion or something of that nature. If that's a fear, don't start trying to conquer that by debuting in front of 400 people without notes. Like that is just not setting ourselves up for success. That's like going to the gym cold, trying to bench press 250 kilos, like you are not going to go back to the gym and it probably won't end well regardless. Um, so it's this piece for me around, okay, this idea of how do I break it down to its smallest bite that I feel still uncomfortable about, but at a level that's doable. And then how do I work at that until I've got my reps into the point where that doesn't feel uncomfortable anymore. And then I level it up again. So that piece by piece is a really important part to the process, I think, of how we actually work through this. Because it's easy to say, oh, we should do things we're afraid of. Yeah, that is a whole other, other story to do. And, and so we actually do need strategies to help us bring this idea to life. Because I believe it's universally transformative 
but the idea of how we actually set ourselves up to be successful in pursuit of that, that that takes some deliberate thinking and, and some process. You, you just remind like the whole idea of a muscle piece, mm. that it doesn't matter what you do, but you're strengthening this muscle. When I first, when I first started out um, in the speaking industry, I was, a, as anyone knows my story, I was a speaker's agent and I would refuse to talk. I would refuse to talk in front of people and <laughs> because be like, can you come and introduce me? I'm like, no, no, I'm not introducing you. I'm not getting up there. I'm not getting on the stage. I'm not touching that stage. You, you do, wow. you, I'll do me. And I remember it used to be a running joke that, you know, you don't have Julie introduce you because my knees would shake. My hands would go, my voice would go. It was a, tra- it was a train wreck. I was a train wreck. And, and I remember having this one day where I thought, you know what, this is getting in the way now. This is getting in the way. This is getting in the way of the what I want to create, the impact that I want to create, the business that I'm trying to create, the relationships that I'm trying to create. And so I took myself, so again, this is about breaking it down into small pieces. I took myself to Toastmasters. So those of you who don't know Toastmasters, mm-hmm. let them go to practice their wedding speech. And I was so embarrassed about what I did for a living that I, I, I think, I can't remember what I told people I did, but it wasn't what I actually did for a living. And because I thought that they were, I felt, really vulnerable that mm-hmm. someone who worked in the speaking industry would be that terrified of speaking. And I did this Toastmasters course and then I just kept saying yes to things as they came, as they came, as they came, as they came and build that up. You know, the largest audience that I've done today is 3,000 people. Unreal. So, but that's bit by bit by bit by bit. But I had a moment, um, I think it was like, no, it was three or four years ago and I was going to speak an event in Sydney and it was way out of my wheelhouse. It was a, a women's event and they had asked me to write a speech, a 10 minute speech on um, a particular topic. And I was going to talk about my journey with IVF. Mm-hmm. Very vulnerable topic for me, a topic that at that point, you know, it's quite hard to manage my emotions through because it was still sure. so real and the beauty and the, and the fear of it was, was still so real. And I took one of my best friends along with me and she was, she was just, she wasn't helping as we were walking to the venue. She was like, I can't believe you're doing this. <laughs> what if you fall apart on stage? Like, what if you, do you even know what anyone else is talking about? Are you going to go really deep? Is everybody else going to be funny? <laughs> and I just had this moment where I thought, and I turned around to her and I was like, you know what? It's fine. Mm. I've fallen on my butt enough times to know that if this is one of those times it's totally fine with me like Mm. I'll get back up it'll be fine I'm not the muscle has grown to the degree now where I know that I can handle it whether it works or whether it doesn't I was just gonna say there are two things that I love about that story and and thank you for sharing it I I didn't know that and um, I appreciate the vulnerability in that as someone in the industry I really do Uh, two things you said that I think are really important from a process standpoint you had a why when you said this is getting in the way now. That is such an important part. There has to be a reason why for taking on a fear or when the moment your stomach starts to rise up, you know, your throat, you'll just go, no, too hard, too difficult. Like there has to be a compelling reason to feel the fear and do it anyway. Um, so I think that's a, a really important one. And the second thing I love, whether it was conscious or not, that we often talk about in, in breaking down fear setting is this idea of you – you had ways of talking to yourself about like what's the worst that can happen. A lot of the time, part of where fear runs away from us is because we're unbelievably good in our unconscious narrative of telling ourselves a story that the world will end, what if, this and that, catastrophizing. Conspiracy theories, so many conspiracies. Totally. And what you did in that moment was went, hey, actually, firstly, yeah, if that happens, 
it's not the end of the world. So let me anchor to that. Even if worst case scenario plays out, it's un, it's I'm good. I'm alive. You know, etc. But you also in doing that kind of help yourself calibrate too that that's probably unlikely to go that badly. And so I'm giving myself, I often call it a likelihood score, like between one and 10, how realistic are we that this kind of worst case scenario that we've just described is going to happen? I don't think in the whole year I got higher than a seven. And the moment you can anchor that unconscious in the conscious, you can take a lot of the oxygen out of the fear. And the, the feeling of knowing that you have shown up enough times in your discomfort, you have shown up enough times when it hasn't worked, where it's worked kind of well, where you where you've shown up enough times that you know that no matter what happens here, I'm going to be just fine. It's going to be, it's going to be just fine because I've, I've, I've shown up enough times now. I'm pretty much bulletproof now. They could all laugh and that would be fine with me. Like I'm pretty much, I'm not a hundred percent bulletproof. I still have my moments, but you know, I'm way more bulletproof than I was way, way. Um, I'm going to ask you just one last question. I have so many questions here that we didn't get to just by the way. It'll have to be a part two. I think like probably 90% of questions I haven't got to. But (laughs) there was this one particular one that I did want to ask you. Um, You said in the book about stress, and again, we're talking about resilience right now, and part of our fears is that they they stress us out, right? Like we, And that stress gets internalized, and sometimes it can take over our bodies, our minds, our hearts, and our ability to get out there. You said it's our relationship to stress that's the problem, not stress itself. And that was twice, twice today. I've heard that one from somebody else who was incredibly successful that I was talking to this morning. She's an engineer, speaker, documentary filmmaker, incredible woman. And she said the moment that she got that was when her life completely exploded. The moment that she got that stress and fear wasn't the problem, but it was her relationship to stress, how she internalized it and how she handled it that made all the difference in the world. How have you learned to do that? It's a great question. And I think we kind of, when you sit back with that, originally I think it's quite a confronting idea to hear. And and maybe it's just our own defense mechanism that makes us want to reject that outright and kind of go, no, that can't be true. It's stress is unpleasant. I, I, you know, I've had lived experience of the idea that stress is unpleasant. But then you think about it in a more nuanced way and you go, well, hold on. You know, if we're talking about elite athletic performances in any major event. I mean, we've just seen the Commonwealth Games, you know, happen recently. Um, There's stress in that. There's stress that actually allows you to perform at the edge of your ability. There's stress that is is helpful in that way. And then there's stress that's negative and toxic, like having to work in an environment where, you know, you are um, unsafe, you know, or you're dealing with people that are, you know, not behaving in a way that is, um, in any way appropriate. You know, that is an absolutely toxic form of stress. I think a lot of um, what we've come to learn about that, this topic relates broadly into whether it's positive psychology and explanatory styles and things like that, that there's extraordinary power in the story and the frame that we give over to things. Like we say between 300 and 700 words to ourselves in any given minute. Um, that's a lot from a monologue standpoint, that dialogue is extraordinary. And, you know, absolutely, obviously, 99% of that is unconscious. Um, And so a big part of this is actually going, what's the story I'm telling myself? Like one of the reframes, and I was actually reminded of it this morning because I was um, watching a clip that referenced it again, uh, legend and and inspiration of mine, Billie Jean King. She uses this phrase, pressure is a privilege. Now, there's all manner of circumstances where we can debate the the kind of uh, 
insensitivity of that perhaps in a socioeconomic sense. But if we think about that purely from the view of how I might frame for myself the stress I'm under at work, the stress I'm feeling about a particular performance, deal, et cetera, that's an example of a frame that challenges me to go how, you know, how lucky am I to be in a situation where I get to step out in front of this group of people today? How fortunate am I to be on the verge of maybe making a deal here? Um, and so the stress actually gets framed in a way that's more positive and in a way that allows us to reset from a parasympathetic nerve system standpoint. So for me, you know, stress is one example of just the power of the conscious and unconscious narrative and catching ourselves on, I guess, broadly the question, is the story that I'm telling myself serving me or do I need to choose a different story? Um, and with stress, we know it is a much more, and this is an evolving space in psychology and in science. I would say it's really only started to get its day in the sun in the last 10 years. So it's very early in this piece, but we are seeing a really rapid evolution in, in the language around this, which is saying seek healthy stress and have a way that you talk to yourself about healthy stress and then have really strong boundaries around any kind of toxic stress and the way that you make sure you shut that out, minimise, mitigate, et cetera. But being able to distinguish those and making sure you're telling yourself the right story about the pressure or the stress that you're under can make a powerfully um, significant difference to the way that you show up, the way that you're able to find a way through, et cetera. I love that distinction there between healthy stress and toxic stress and, and drawing a line between those two things because when you bundle them all together, you cease to have the ability to know what to react to, how to internalise it, what to overreact. So kind of separating that out gives you a really good place to start. Well, I know I know you have to go now. I know you have Fortunately. a call that's about to start. I'm going to let you go, Holly. Again, such a privilege. There'll be a part two, I have no doubt. But thanks. Can't Thank wait. you for coming on. Thank you for having me. So appreciate it. Already looking forward to part two. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode and have seized hold of at least one tool, idea or mindset that will help you start raising your own level of influence. Now, for those of you who want to take the next step in your journey or would just love a roadmap to becoming the most influential voice, idea or brand in your space, then I have good news. You can now download the latest updated version of my ebook, The Influencer Code, from my website, juliemasters.com. Also, there's a link in the show notes. Just pop in your email address, and I promise I will not spam you, but it is jam-packed full of ideas, tools, and case studies that I have come across in my now 20-plus years of doing this work, not to mention the seven areas and seven core questions that I have found to be hands-down the most valuable when it comes to immediately lifting your ability to make an impact. Download it, keep it, share it, juice it for all it is worth. I hope it makes a massive difference in both your career and your business. Thank you always to my co-founder and the main brain behind this podcast, Lauren Kelly. You kick my butt in all the right ways. Thank you for making it happen. And if you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, whatever your platform of choice happens to be. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you never miss an episode.